0: Dear Father, thank you, Lord, for the, for the men and women who are continuing in their ministry here and the way you're growing that. It's uh, Ministry, Father, as you know, is, as you show us, it goes through stages in our lives. Sometimes we need the ministry of one person, and sometimes we need the ministry of a crowd. Uh, sometimes we need uh, the ministry of a, of a kind and encouraging word, and sometimes we need correction. And Father, you're always ahead of us. You always know what we need before we recognize it ourselves. And Father, it's been a joy in the year we've had as a church to see how you have moved in the lives of people, both those who are serving and those who are being served. Often we are one one day and we are another the next. And Father, as we've grown, as we continue to grow, you you give us more capability, you give us more reach, you give us more um, ideas and desires in which we can uh, glorify your name. But as we do, Father, grow and as we see what comes next, I do pray, Father, you'd never leave us or let us leave behind what got us to this point in the beginning. A love for you and a love for your word. A love for ministry in its purest form, that we would grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that we would, forsaking the world, put ourselves at his disposal, and that we would seek for those around us who might uh, be willing to follow the same Lord that we do. Lord, those are the basics of ministry. That's worshiping you in spirit and in truth, and it is what you've called us to do. And Father, we know this. And, and yet, how easy is it, Father, that as we grow and as you give us more opportunity to serve, how easy is it, Father, for us to forget that the main things are the plain things, and we want to stay in that place, Father. Help us to to re- regard this opportunity as a special moment, something we won't squander. Keep us on track. Keep us focused. And as we Come together tonight to study, and as we come together next week to talk business and all that comes with being in a church, just keep our hearts and our minds, Father, focused on you. Keep our attention on the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 9. We're ending that today and getting into 10. You know, when I sat down to study for this week and for what I do today, I did intend to get into 10. I honestly believed that I would get into 10. We're getting closer. And we'll Actually, 10 is next week. We, we get into 10 proper next week, but it, it's going to take today to get us there, and here's why. Over the past few months, we've studied through chapters 8 and 9 in Matthew, and we've been looking at Matthew's record in those two chapters of Jesus' miracles in the Galilee. And last week, if you remember, if you were here, or if you listened online, you, you, you noticed that as we ended the study of those miracles, we came to that complex connection that linked the final three miracles in the group that that Jesus uh, is shown to do at the end of 9. And it connected that to something we looked at briefly in chapter 12, you remember? That is, in order to understand the the final miracle of chapter 9, I had to take us back for just a moment to chapter 12 and reconstruct the timeline of some events that connect these two. And I know that may have been a bit confusing. I'm sure it probably was at times. But let me promise you this, that things are going to become increasingly clear about all of that and more to come. As we move to chapter 12. And I actually think that's one of the the lessons that might be valuable for us in this study. That is, knowing that the benefits of verse by verse study come in many ways, but one of them is it clarifies these things. As you move through the scriptures the way it was written, as you keep going, things get clearer. Things that might confuse you in the beginning, eventually they make sense. It's kind of like watching a serial TV show or a movie where at the beginning, you're, you know, if you're like me, you're asking, honey, what was that? I don't understand this. What was going on right there? And my wife has to pause it and she has to explain the whole story to me again. And then we start up again. Well, with Scripture, just keep going and God will eventually begin to show you what you missed. That, that's what I love about teaching the Bible the way it was written. So as we studied that connection last week, I told you that in chapter 12, there's something that's going to happen there that we're going to study there. And that's something is going to completely change Jesus' approach to His earthly ministry. It's something big. It's something pivotal. It disrupts everything He's doing. It sets Him on an entirely new course for the rest of His time on earth. What is that big something? Well, in short, it is Israel's rejection of Jesus' claim to be their Messiah. There is such a moment. There is such a dividing moment in the course of Jesus' ministry when Israel collectively, if you will, makes that determination. And once Israel has turned down Jesus' offer of the kingdom, everything Jesus did and everything he said changed from that point forward. Now, the full story of how and why they rejected him and what comes of that, that all awaits us in chapter 12. But I'm telling you this now, because even before we get to that place, as you saw a little bit last week, that moment casts a shadow over the events that we're studying now, at the end of 9 and all through 10 and 11. Because obviously Jesus knows that moment is coming. And because he knows it's coming, he knows that he's going to be rejected by his people. He knows it's going to force him to change his ministry. It causes him to begin to prepare his disciples even now for what's about to happen. And that process of preparation is the subject of Matthew's 10th and 11th chapters. The subject is Jesus beginning to prepare his disciples for that coming irrevocable change when Israel rejects him and what it will mean for them. Now the challenge for him is he has to do this to a bunch of guys that have no clue this is coming. They don't even know Jesus is going to die. They think the kingdom is about to be set up and later they're going to argue who will be the greatest in that kingdom. These guys are out of touch with the reality of what's going on around them and it'll take a while for them to catch up to that which is just, I think, normal. We would have done probably the same thing. So what we now need to do over the next couple of chapters is understand what Jesus is doing in preparing them. Why he's preparing them, of course, we know that, but how he's preparing them is the subject. And it actually begins at the end of 9, which is where we go tonight, where we ended last week in chapter 9. We're going to be at verse 35 tonight. Let's pick up there. This is Jesus beginning that course of preparation for his disciples to encounter his own rejection. Verse 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Hold there. So Matthew summarizes Jesus' time in the Galilee. In verse 35, you saw, saying... Jesus moved around the 240-odd cities and villages that made up the Galilee in his day. And as he moved around them, he was proclaiming openly, the kingdom is here, which is to say, I am the Messiah. I'm prepared to bring you your kingdom now. And, of course, to back up his claims and prove his identity, he's performing miracles which validate that he has the power of God, that he's speaking with the authority of God in what he says. I'm the promised Messiah. Here I am. You can have me. Now you remember, some of you, that back as we were looking at earlier stages of this gospel, chapter 4 actually, there was a moment in which Matthew summarizes Jesus' Galilean ministry. And let me read you what he says. There's one verse, and I want you to listen to it because it's going to sound like something you just heard. Matthew 4.23, he says, Jesus was going throughout all the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. You heard this before? Yeah, like two minutes ago right matthew virtually repeats word for word the same thought here in matthew 9:35 that he wrote earlier in 4:23 as we name it as we number them and back in chapter 4 what matthew was doing at that point was he was introducing his record of jesus's miracles in the galilee and he introduced it with that summarizing statement and now here at the end he repeats the statement again which is our indication that he has concluded that section of relaying to you what happened while Jesus ministered in the Galilee. So you can see these two statements as bookends. Bookends around a section of something he wanted to cover in these in between chapters, Jesus' time in the Galilee. Now, you and I both know he did a lot more than that. He, He would have done a lot more things than Matthew chose to record, some of which you'll find in the other Gospels. But as John says at the end of his Gospel, there aren't enough books in the universe to write down everything Jesus said and did during his time on earth. So we know then that Matthew, like all the Gospels... He just gave us a representative sample of the work of Jesus when he was ministering in the Galilee. But here's the point. At this moment now in his narrative, what Matthew is indicating to us by this closing statement that matches the opening one, is he's telling you that he is done chronicling Jesus' work in the Galilee, which demonstrated that he was who he said he was and he was ready to give the kingdom to Israel. We've moved past that moment, at least in the narrative now, And that means Jesus' priorities in ministry are also shifting. And Matthew's going to record that now in a new section. This is in view, again, of his approaching rejection and his knowledge that it's coming. So he begins to shift as he goes there to that moment in some of the things he's doing in ministry. And begins in verse 36. This is where the shift gets introduced. Matthew says, Jesus looked upon the crowds with compassion. Uh, The word that we see, compassion here, in Greek you could translate the word that's in Greek another way, you could translate it as pity. Similar word, right? Pity, compassion. So you have thousands of people, as we've seen already, drawn into this ministry, following Jesus around as he does what he's been doing and teaching. And as he looks upon these crowds at a point in that that ministry in, in the Galilee, it says Jesus had a heart of pity for these people. But now, if you read the rest of the verse, what you realize quickly is it's not him Pitying their circumstances—that is, their need for healing, uh, their, their sicknesses, and all the rest—that's not what he's attending to. He's feeling pity here. He says because they were distressed, they were dispirited. Now that's a profound statement, and it takes us a minute to understand that. It's worth a little bit of our time tonight to look at this. First, the words "distressed." Distressed means troubled. It means worried, right? And that would be an odd way to characterize a group of people who just spent—I don't know—a year or more with Jesus ministering to them in the Galilee. I mean, that's not the response you would have expected, right? If I had asked you, hey, summarize how the people in the Galilee felt after Jesus had been ministering to them for a year. I don't think distressed would have been at the top of your list. But that's the result. After at least a year, as far as we can tell, he's been teaching, he's been healing. Wouldn't you expect the opposite, really? You'd expect people to be overjoyed at this point. You'd expect them to be just thrilled... Uh, either at the prospect of a healer with this kind of power, or if they really got it, they'd be thrilled that their Messiah was there, right? That'd be the ultimate thrill, the ultimate joy. But here's Matthew saying, Jesus looks out over this crowd, and he feels compassion, he feels pity, because these people are troubled and they're discouraged. So that begs the first question, right? Why? What's gone on to create this in their minds? Well, you get the answer in that comparison that Matthew offers at the end of the verse. He compares their distress, he says, to that of a sheep, being without a shepherd. Now, you know, I'm sure all of you know this. Shepherding is a very common metaphor in the Bible for the, the pastoral relationship that we see in the church, ultimately to our good shepherd in heaven, but, but certainly within the body as well. You know, sheep and shepherds, we, we hear this all the time, right? Um, I'll tell a story on my son. My son asked me a question right before the Christmas service. He says, Dad, when the, when the shepherds left to go see the baby Jesus, what happened to all their sheep? And I said, well, son, I bet they went on the lamb. <laughs> if you're probably 35 or older, you know what that means. Shepherding is an excellent illustration of that relationship. It's not just a convenient one. It actually is a very telling one. You may remember that when, uh, at the end of John's Gospel, when Jesus confronts Peter back up in the Galilee, you know, as he com- basically as he brings Peter back into ministry after Peter had sort of run away after denying christ and so on what did he say to peter he says i want you to tend my lambs i want you to feed my sheep you know that's the point that peter was to care for those in the church somewhat like you see a shepherd caring for a flock of sheep and there's a great comparison there and obviously again when you talk about shepherding and sheep you start with the fact that our good shepherd christ is the ultimate shepherd of god's people and there's there's no there's no doubt in that but there's also this biblical principle that Lord, the Lord raises up, men and women, primarily men, but certainly women as well, uh, as shepherds for the flock of God's people, for the congregation of God's people. And those leaders, those shepherds, or as the Bible might say, under-shepherds, serve underneath the authority of Christ, but they play an important role. But what that tells us is if the leaders God appoints in, in the congregation are the shepherds, or under-shepherds, that means we collectively are the sheep. And I say that in the way that i do because unfortunately the metaphor isn't necessarily complimentary for the sheep because sheep are notoriously dim-witted and if you study a little bit on this you'll find wonderful parallels up and down the line i mean sheep move with their eyes down and they're they're sort of blindly focused on satisfying their hunger and as a result they can become oblivious to where they're going which means they're prone to wandering away and they inevitably get separated from the flock. If they do that, they get lost and they end up in dangerous situations before they even realize they're in dangerous situations. By the way, I think the nature of sheep is one proof I could offer someone that evolution is fundamentally flawed. Because there's no way natural selection ends up with a sheep surviving in the wild. It's kind of like poodles. Poodles don't exist in the wild, and there's a good reason. And it's proof that there's not some you know, mechanics of the universe working to produce the best in the... Because if sheep came out of that, they'd die instantly. There's no, there's no option for these sheep. They are virtually defenseless when left to themselves, right? They're just, they're just dinner on four hooves to any animal that sees them. So as a result, sheep have to have a watchful eye guiding them. They have to. And the emphasis here is on guiding, by the way, because it's another interesting characteristic of sheep, is you cannot drive them from behind, like you do cattle. You can try, but they just kind of go like this. Sheep have to be led from the front. That's the nature of how they work. So they instinctively look to a, a leader. Now, I don't mean in the sense that they think of it in those terms, but in, in, the instinct of the animal is to look for something to follow. To look for a leader and they expect to be led and they trust their shepherd. Once they get to know their shepherd, they'll trust that person to the point that they'll go anywhere that the shepherd asks them to go and they expect to be led to pastures and, and, and back to the pen and so on. Which is to say that if sheep are without a shepherd, then they're going to get distressed very quickly. Uh, They get confused. I mean, if you were to experiment with this, if you put a bunch of sheep in in the field without a shepherd for any length of time, after a while, they just kind of get confused. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. And they they know they're vulnerable. I think instinctively, the animal senses there's a bit of vulnerability there. They may start to follow other animals. You might see a bunch of sheep following a cow. They may follow their shadow. Like I said, it's not very complimentary to the congregation when we think about this, but they can panic, they can stampede, Uh, they can just scatter. They have to have a shepherd if they're going to get where they're supposed to go. Matthew says that the situation that Jesus was witnessing in Israel was that of sheep left without proper supervision and care. The people were distressed, which if we carry the analogy out, the metaphor out, that would mean that they were wandering, that they were unsure of where to go. Uh, I mean, if you don't have a shepherd, you don't have a leader. And we know that they had religious leaders. You know, If we try to understand what the point is, and we start thinking to ourselves, well, my goodness, the people of Israel had no shepherds. They had no leaders. Well, wait a minute. That's not accurate. Not in the literal sense. Not in the simple sense that there was leadership. Yes, there was leadership there. There were Pharisees. They were everywhere. If anything, they had too much. They had Pharisees controlling every aspect of their life in Israel, directing their every move. And even more puzzling, why would you say that Israel was like sheep without a shepherd when the good shepherd is right there with them in their very midst at that time anyway so how can it be that the sheep of Israel were distressed without being without a shepherd as matthew says well to understand what he means i want you to consider the effects of christ's ministry in the galilee at this point after a year or more of ministry first of all the effect in total was impossible to ignore from from any point of view from those who were in israel in that day you could be a jew who loved what you saw and what you heard or you could be a jew who hated what jesus was doing but what you could not be was a jew who ignored what he was doing because he was too provocative he was saying things that were just too hard to get over you either had to deal with them one way or another and his powers i mean for crying out loud he was doing things that as we saw last week had never been seen before in all the history of israel you can't ignore that unless it's an intentional effort so everyone who is around him at this point everyone who's in the galilee has come to some decision they have to render some kind of verdict they have to decide for themselves what does it mean that this guy is here and what does it mean that he can do these things and what do we make of what he's saying about himself later in this gospel jesus will address his disciples and he will ask them to tell him what explanations are you hearing from the people with regard to me and what i'm doing what are people saying you may remember this in Matthew 16, 13. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. And others, Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But when they're asked, What is the crowd saying? What's the word on the street? The answer comes back with those various forms, right? There's all these various explanations floating around. But did you notice what's not in the list? The thing that no one seems to be saying at that point, anyway? The most obvious explanation? That you're the Messiah. I mean, Peter acknowledges that in the next moment. But when the people were saying what they were saying, they were not giving that explanation. Well, that tells you that even after a year or more of Jesus ministering, in the way that he was ministering, proclaiming the kingdom of God... Saying he was the Messiah. We're not talking about talking about things in a, in a kind of subtle way, you know, that maybe they missed it. Now, he's been openly declaring this for months. And yet, where are the people? Well, they're not believing in him. They're looking for other explanations. Most of the sheep were confused. And the reason for that confusion is that the influence of their religious leaders, the Pharisees, had led them away from that truth. The people looked to their so-called shepherds and they sought an answer from them concerning what they were seeing. They were looking for a verdict from the experts. What do we make of this guy? What do we make of what he's saying? And those corrupt men told the people Jesus was not the Messiah. As you saw last week in the miracle we saw last week at the very end of chapter 9, right, right before the section we're in now, you notice last week, what was their answer? Oh, he doesn't do, do these things uh, with the power of God. He has the power of Satan. And of course, that's going to be the story they give in chapter 12 as well. And so naturally, the leaders' lies concerning Jesus have left them, it says, distressed and troubled, being as if without shepherds. That is, the crowds are now disappointed to learn that the thing they so desperately wanted has turned out to be just a facade at least that's what they've been told that here they were for a moment their hearts anticipating that in all of the history of Israel we've been waiting and now it's here and we're the ones to receive it and then they find out oh no you've been duped by the by the enemy and going a step further if it's true that satan can mimic the powers of the messiah well then how will israel ever know who this guy truly is how can he ever be found How can we avoid being misled by this kind of power? And that leads you to the second outcome, and that is being dispirited. Dispirited just means to be downcast. It means to be uh, discouraged, spiritually discouraged. Some of us may know what that feels like from times in our own walk. Well, that's what was going on here. Israel was discouraged because they were thinking, I believe, that they had come so close to the Messiah, everything seemed to be going right where they wanted to go, and then at the last minute, they got the rug pulled out from them because the leadership says it's not what it looks like. They kind of felt like the villagers who've been fooled by that boy who cried wolf one too many times. You know, once, once you've been fooled a couple of times, you just, you don't just give up listening, you give up caring. And that's where the nation is. Matthew says the people were without a shepherd. And what he means is this, in a twofold sense. He means first, they were without a shepherd in the sense that the people did not embrace Jesus. They did not embrace the good shepherd, even though he was standing there in their midst and Israel longed for that Messiah. They wanted to have what they thought they had. They got so close, and then it just kind of fell apart, and that was discouraging. And then secondly, it means that Israel missed their Messiah because they were also without earthly shepherds, men who would lead them properly in spiritual matters. In fact, those evil religious leaders were in fact the stumbling blocks which caused them to miss their messiah in the first place so it's actually one of these leading to the other elsewhere in the gospel jesus says this about these men in matthew 23 13 he says but woe to you scribes and pharisees these are the leaders and then he says hypocrites because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people for you do not enter it yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. That's a direct reference to this problem that we see today. When sheep, when people of God, when they lack a caring shepherd, friends, they're in a world of hurt. And that's not just true in the case of what we see here. Certainly it was for Israel, but that never stops being true. That's a principle that's still true today. When God's sheep, when His flock, as the Bible would say, when you're without a shepherd, without that person that God appoints to guide you into greater spiritual maturity, you're in real trouble. I think it's somewhat fashionable today within Christendom to think that with the Internet and the availability of so many great resources on the uh, you know podcasts and TV and so on, that we really don't need this setting very much anymore. We can do it all ourselves. We stay at home, listen to teaching on the Internet, get our own kind of degree, as it were, in that process, and we don't need a lot of shepherding. And I'll tell you, if you try that for very long, you'll only prove how wrong that is. You may get a lot of knowledge, but I doubt you'll grow very much. The influence of leadership is critical. And I'm not talking about in some kind of business mindset. I'm not talking about the way it's sometimes portrayed. I'm talking about it in a spiritual sense of how the Scriptures portray it. That there is a role for shepherding a group of people who by their nature need leadership to get to the right place, like sheep do. And it works the opposite, too. Corrupt leadership, especially those who are engaged in false teaching, will cause believers to adopt wrong thinking and wrong behavior, which moves us further from where we should be. And there's a chain of events that happen in this case when you have bad leadership, bad shepherds. You start with bad teaching, which leads to bad thinking and bad behavior. And when those bad thoughts and bad behavior take hold in someone's life, it leads to bad consequences. And over time, those bad consequences will lead the believer, who thinks they're doing what they're supposed to, because they're following what their leadership says, it'll lead them to become discouraged and dispirited and troubled and cynical. And to the point where, in many cases, the person who is under bad leadership for too long will come to view the pursuit of Christ and the pursuit of His Word to be a waste of time because of how they've experienced it to that point. I've seen this enough to know, and I believe it's a a common experience within the church, bad leadership, bad experience in churches, bad time in the Word, bad things happening whatever way lead people to just give up on church, give up on discipleship, give up on the whole game of it because they just throw the baby out with the bathwater and they're tired of being duped. They're tired of being discouraged. And at worst... I found people who concluded that even God's word itself is useless and irrelevant. And when you give up on this, you know, that's the end of it, of course. When you come to the point where you've given up on this, what else do you have? I mean, as a believer, where are you going to go for your answers about what God wants and who he is and what he's called you to do? I mean, if you turn away from Jesus and you turn away from his church and you turn away from his word, you know what? All you have left is the wisdom of the world and your own fleshly nature. Good luck with that. I mean, we all know where that leads us, right? And all the books of the world can't substitute for this one. Who's going to tell you about God? Dr. Phil? Judge Judy? The internet? I mean, you you see my point, right? The Lord appoints shepherds over his flock for a good reason. Because they're crucial to keeping the Lord's sheep together, and keeping them safe, and keeping them nourished, and keeping them focused on the right goal. Now, that's assuming they do their job, right? And for the same reason, bad shepherds have the potential to completely sabotage our spiritual journey. We know that too. Israel, in their case, they had been mistreated by literally centuries of these kinds of men. And now, when their Messiah shows up, they didn't even recognize him. They couldn't fully embrace him. And we too, if we're mistreated... By those who are over us as shepherds, we're going to wander, we're going to be lost, we're going to starve for spiritual nourishment, and we're eventually going to run into dangerous threats. I mean, it's just how the analogy works, right? Now, I'm not going to stay on this point a long time, although certainly as someone who pastors a church, I'd love to. But you don't really need me to harp on it. I think the point has already been made. Hebrews 13:17 says, We submit to our leaders and we obey them, because it would not be in our own best interests to do otherwise. But at the same time, friends, be discerning. I'm not just talking in some theoretical way about some other situation. I'm talking about even now in this church within the leadership you have now, including me, be discerning. Be careful. Listen to who teaches you. Watch how they live their life. Look to see if what they say comports with what they do. And if they don't, when it, when it happens, correct them. And if and when a leader, whoever they are, wherever they are, reveals themselves to be ungodly or unable to divide the Scriptures rightly, look elsewhere. Go somewhere else. Nowhere in the Scriptures are we appointed to fix that problem. We are called to find someone who can serve us. Because if you remain under men like that or women, you're going to be like a sheep without a shepherd. And that's headed for trouble. And time's too short. Your life's not long enough to give you recovery from that. You should take every moment you can to get the proper teaching. But look, friends, here's some good news in the midst of all of that warning. Even when a believer lacks good shepherds in their congregations, Our good shepherd in heaven never forsakes his sheep. And the Spirit of God, who lives inside the heart of every believer, continues to minister to your heart even when no one else will do it. In fact, he will do it even when someone else is doing it. And that means this, that when a child of God comes under the influence of false teaching or evil leaders or whatever, the Spirit of God living in that person will alert him or her to the danger. And that believer will sense a growing dissatisfaction with where they are or what they're hearing. They'll sense something is missing. They'll sense something isn't right. And that that spirit in them is driving them to consider a change. Now, whether you listen or not, well, that's a whole other story. But the spirit never fails you in that regard. And that's what you see happening here, I think. That is, it's the Lord himself now, not merely his spirit. But in the same sense, you have the Lord now moved to compassion for the sake of his people Israel, because he senses they are without the right shepherds. He feels pity for them, and he knows that they're being misled by the very leaders that had been appointed by God to, to bring them to the truth. And so, naturally, he wants to solve the problem. As I just said, the Spirit will lead in us a desire for something better. He wants to do that for his people here and then, uh, here and, or here and now, as he stands there. He wants to give them proper leadership. And having brought them to know the Good Shepherd, these leaders then would then develop these people in a, a program of, of discipleship. That's what He wants. All right, so what's He going to do about it? Well, if you look at verse 36, leading to where it goes next, this is the phase of Matthew's Gospel we now begin. This is the phase, this new section, in which Jesus, having just made His assessment of the problem, He begins to prepare His disciples for that coming rejection of him when they will then have to now take their place as the next generation of leaders, the next generation of shepherds to guide God's people after that rejection comes. Because Jesus himself is going to leave for having been rejected. Again, more things to cover when we get to chapter 12. But just understand that at this stage you have these men now, who by the way are clueless that this is coming, who now have to be trained to assume the shepherding duties of god's people they're not merely following jesus they're going to get ready to be the leaders of this church and when they assume these responsibilities and this is the key point they cannot model their responsibilities on the models that they've become accustomed to in jewish society i want you to think about how hard this is for them how hard this would have been what if you were suddenly thrust into the position to lead a church where would you go for your examples what would you base your own behavior on what would be your model let me submit to you that it would be the people who had led you up to that point. Where else would you go? Now, you would say, oh, I go to Scripture. Well, yes, I understand that we would look to the Word of God as our guide in all of these things. But in the practical day-to-day of life, you'd remember what pastor so-and-so did, what, what so-and-so in my Bible study used to do, and you'd draw on that experience. And some of that might be very good. But there's almost nothing like that for these men anything they might have drawn on from their experience of what religious leadership looked like in their day was a negative example. And so Jesus has to establish now in these coming chapters a whole new example, a whole new standard. Toss out everything you think you know about how to lead God's people. Let me start again. And that gives us, as we study this, by the way, an excellent opportunity to make sure we're still looking at the right thing too, right? And it begins in verse 37, with the very notion that there is work to do in finding leaders to lead the flock. Verse 37, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, and therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. I'm sure there's probably been a million pastors over the centuries who've preached just on these two verses, and you know 90% of the time I'm sure it's been a basic thrust of evangelism, and that's, that's fine. That's good. But in its context... This is not a topic, this is not a subject of evangelism, so much. In its context, what he is doing with these men right now is he is challenging them to think differently about what leadership means in the church. Everyone's probably heard this passage at some point, right? The metaphor of a harvest. Everyone gets it. It's pretty well understood. You have the world, it's the field. And in that field, you have grain coming up. That's representative of the hearts of those in the world that are lost, that we want to bring to know the gospel, to bring to know Jesus, right? And that the, the, it's the, notice he calls himself the Lord of the harvest. So we know that means he's the one who actually does the saving, right? That, that's part of this metaphor. But he asks us to go out as his workers in the field to collect that harvest, that is to, to reach the lost with the gospel and bring them into the church and disciple them. And there you go. There's your sermon on how this is about evangelism. And you already knew it. But if you can, step back with me for a minute from that. Just kind of see if you can follow your thinking with this. I want you to try to think like a first century disciple. With what you may have heard from me in the past as we've studied on this. On what it was like to be in that world in that time. And to that audience, having seen Pharisaic Judaism as the style of ministry for the day. And you're in that world and you just hear that there is work to be done in the field. You need to understand these words are revolutionary. In fact, they're almost nonsensical. Jesus said there's a harvest to be sought. And we take this for granted, but that was not a conventional thought in his day. Israel was God's people. There are no others to seek. The rest are dogs. The Gentiles are dogs. They're not going to heaven. There's no evangelism. You You never saw a bunch of Jews evangelizing the world before Christ showed up. That was a ridiculous concept to them. Apart from the individual case of a Ruth, for example, I'm just saying in general, that was not how Israel understood God's working in them. And to some extent that was correct, because in the scriptures, the the Bible had told Israel that they're expecting the Messiah to come and bring them the kingdom. And they were waiting for that. There's nothing to go seek, it's just a waiting game. Jesus says to that same group now, no, 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 the kingdom citizen, he has to be sought. He has to be recruited. There's no automatic membership. You won't enter the kingdom simply because you're born a Jew. We've got to go find these people. That's just revolutionary. again, for us, it's second nature. It wasn't that way then. And then he goes on. He says, furthermore, those who will enter the kingdom have to be recruited, not by God himself, not directly, so to speak, but by workers who are specifically sent out to seek those Future citizens for the kingdom. Now that's a program of preparation for the kingdom that no one in Israel had ever considered before. I mean, remember, how is the kingdom going to be populated from their point of view? Well, the Messiah would come, he'd show up, he'd establish the kingdom, and we're there waiting for it, and we walk in. Now, what Jesus is saying though, we gotta go find the people who are gonna be part of the kingdom, it's not automatic. And the Lord has never asked this of Israel before, not explicitly, not in the Word. And in light of Jesus' coming rejection, this would now be the kingdom program. Something we'll expound on later as we get into the later parts of this gospel is what does kingdom really mean in the Bible? And in general, there's four ways in which the word kingdom, the concept of kingdom, is developed across all of Scripture. It started with Abraham as a promise. And then when Jesus showed up, it became a proposal. And then after the rejection... Because it was, he was rejected, it became a program of recruiting citizens. And eventually, when he returns, it becomes a place on earth. A promise, a proposal, a program, and a place. We're in number three right now. We're part of the proposal. I'm sorry, we're part of the program. We're part of the recruiting program of finding citizens. And Jesus is introducing that concept to his disciples right here. That there would now be a program of work where God's people would work for him in seeking more disciples for this coming kingdom. And that is something new. That is something radical. This is going to require that Jesus and his disciples cultivate something within them that no Jew had ever really cared about before. And I'm not just picking on the Jew. I'm saying for anyone who knew God in that day. And that is a new attitude. And what is this new attitude? Well, it's a radically different view of the world than the Pharisees had. You know, the Pharisees were all about, look at me, I got my act together, I'm the special one, you guys are dogs, and you have nothing on me. You flip that around now, and we say, we got nothing to offer except the gospel, and we're going to go out and find all the others who need it. That's totally new. And Pharisees, by their nature then, were self-serving, they were self-righteous, they were self-satisfied, they were not God's workers, they were God's anointed in their minds. But now Jesus says, no, I want shepherds. I want humble men. I want self-sacrificing men and women. I want people who are focused on Christ's priorities. I want people who have a heart for his flock. And those kinds of leaders, friends, are not common. You may think, well, sure, we get that all the time. No, you don't. It's hard. And I say that as one who's supposed to have that heart. And I've got to confess to you, there's days I don't. There's days I don't. Not because of you necessarily, although some of you, yes. But not <laughs> most of you. No, I'm just joking. But seriously... That's not common. You don't just run into these people, right? When's the last time you just ran into someone who was perfectly humble, self-sacrificing, worth, you know, willing to do anything he could for anybody at all times? When you find someone like that, you make them your best friend. Usually they're, they're your grandfather, right? They're, just, they're not people you run into every day. But here's the Lord saying that's what he needs. Those leaders are rare, which is why the Lord advises his disciples here, the future leaders of the early church, to beseech, which is a great Bible word, but you could just say beg. That's what it literally means. Beg the Lord for workers, for help. Anyone called to shepherd God's people knows what Jesus is talking about. You can get an amen from the staff. Anyone who's ever been called into a leadership role within the church knows exactly what Jesus is talking about. That is, we need people around us to do this work. There's never enough. And I don't just want bodies. I need people who are humble, I need people who have a heart for God's people. I need someone who's not in it for themselves, because I can get those people any day, and they're a pain in the neck. They just get in the way of ministry. What I need is someone who thinks about the flock the way a shepherd does. I love the stories in Luke 16 when he says that the, the, the one is lost, and the shepherd leaves the 99 to find the one. Now, you and I would do that with a lot of this stupid sheep. I've got to go find this stupid sheep. I'm tired of this, always having to leave the other flock. And then when you find the sheep, it's like, you bad sheep, get in the back there, you know? But the way the parable works is Jesus, the shepherd, picks up the one and joyously, rejoicing, puts it on his shoulders and takes it back. That's a heart for ministry. It's not easy. We want that, don't we? If we're the lost sheep, we want that. And that's the kind of heart Jesus says we need to be praying that God would raise up. All around these guys in that day were examples of men who loved power and they loved money and they loved the praise of people. And the impact of that kind of leadership, well, you can just see it. It left people distressed and discouraged in their life. And ultimately, it resulted in that entire generation of Israel missing their Messiah. That's how bad it can be when your leadership isn't on track. And that's not the model he wanted for his first disciples. And of course, it cannot be our model today. That is, we should also do this. We should be asking the Lord. We should be begging him to raise up men and women who work on his behalf and have the right heart. Because the difference for us is everything. It's not just a matter of we need help, let's raise up workers. It's needing the right kind of help. Because the wrong kind of shepherd will do a lot more harm for us than no shepherd at all, in whatever capacity, and in whatever role. Now, having said that to you all, there is an obvious corollary to this command, and it's one we can't ignore, and it's what we're going to end on tonight. The corollary, I think I call it, to what he's saying. That is, he called for us to beg, to plead, to beseech the Lord for workers, to go out into the field. But while you're praying for the Lord to have those workers, to, to, to raise up those workers, to assume the work of building the kingdom, you need to consider whether the Lord's preparing your heart to be that worker, right? Because, I, I mean, think about it like this way. If everyone in the church is supposed to pray this prayer, and I think that's clear, well, imagine the whole church praying for workers. Well, obviously, whoever answers that call is going to be one of those people who is praying. And that's the whole goal. Maybe that someone is you. One of the main reasons that we pray about anything in Scripture is to allow the Lord to work in our own heart through our prayer life in regard to that request. I mean, for example, you may pray to the Lord sometimes in your life for, for something you need. Lord, give me this thing or this, this thing I need, give it to me. Or you may pray at other times for the opposite take this thing away from me, take this issue away from me, right? But as you do those prayers, as you stay in that mindset and you pray, what the Lord is doing through your prayer life is He is helping your understanding of these things, certainly, and giving you some insight into why it had to happen and what's going on. But over time, what He also does is He moves your desires. He moves your desires. He moves your will such that in time, your will is in concert with His. To the end, that no matter how those situations turn out, you have now uh, an understanding and a peace about why it needed to be the way it was, and it's what you're actually desiring. Uh, I think I can't remember who it was. It was Tozer or somebody else who made this great analogy between uh, how it works with prayer, where you have someone sitting in a boat tied to the shore, and he compared our prayers to the Lord to the person who sits in the boat and pulls on the rope. And then he asked the question, when the person in the boat pulls on the rope, what moves, the shore or the boat? And similarly, when you sit here on the earth and you pray to the man, the man, Jesus, the God who made everything, right? Christ, whoever, in other words, the creator God. You're down here on earth. He made you. And you're praying to the creator who made you, telling him what you think he should do. You're pulling on a rope. Who's moving? It's not him. Ultimately, he's he's using prayer to move you because that's who needs to move. And as you obey this command that we're told to pray for workers, to accomplish the work of leading God's people properly, you may find your heart encouraged to be the one to take up that work. And in time, you'll begin to see yourself as that worker. In time, you'll develop a love for the flock of God in a way that you didn't have before. Perhaps you'll start to... See yourself answering that call, because what Jesus saw in that time were people who were confused and wandering and deceived and defenseless, and you do not have to look very far today to find people in the church in the body who are under similar circumstances and He told that new generation of men you 're going to be the next group of leaders who pick up the, the path that I need you to take my church on and I'm going to ask you to start thinking. I love the way he did this, right? He told the first apostles, before they knew they were going to be the apostles, to start praying for workers. And guess what every one of them became? You see how he did that? He put their hearts in a mindset of praying for leadership before they even understand that they were the ones who were going to be in the leadership position, among others, over time. Those are the future apostles. They were the first century leaders of the church. And Jesus has just now begun to prepare them to think about the reality of leading a church in his absence, his physical absence. I wonder if those men later on in their life, as they were struggling in ministry, I mean, with the explosive, explosive growth of the church or with the persecution or whatever came their way, I wonder if they ever thought back to that moment and said, oh, I see what you did there. But now I understand why we need this kind of prayer all the time because there's so much more work than there is people. And we need the right kind of men and women to do it. This church has been blessed with just an incredible team of people coming in. Volunteer, staff, up and down from elders down to the person who's going to clean out the trash cans after we're done tonight. God bless whoever that person is tonight. Uh, We're thankful for every single one of them. But, you know, this is a start. I mean, it's a great start. One year in, I'm feeling very good about what the Lord has done for us. It's amazing. But where will we be in five? I don't know. But I know this, we're going to need a lot more workers. And I'll bet most of them are in this room. And... We need to be praying for those future leaders because whoever they turn out to be, whatever capacity they have in this church, they're going to make a difference in your spiritual life. That is for the better or for the worse. And we should be thinking about that now. Don't overlook the possibility that you're that person. But maybe, maybe not. Maybe you're where you need to be right now. But whoever will stand in that gap, we need to make sure we're praying that God raises up the right one. Because it's going to make all the difference for us and we don't want to get sidetracked. All right, we'll come back into this finally into chapter 10 next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge your command to pray for workers in a field that you've placed us in. We uh, commit in our own hearts right now, Father, to be men and women who obey that command. Father, give us the courage and the strength and the fortitude to keep our promise. And Father, as we do pray for these men and women to be raised up for those we have now and for those who will come, Father, we just ask that you would be in their hearts before we even see them, preparing them to be the kind of shepherds we need. Don't, don't give us shepherds, Father, that would do to us what the men did in Jesus' day to Israel. Give us men and women who care for you the way you care for us and who will look upon us as a flock that needs to be loved and to be guided, not as a job, but as a calling. And as that promise is fulfilled, as that uh, promise is met, Father, as you see us praying and as you hear our desires, our begging of you for these people, I pray, Father, you'd be turning our hearts to, to whatever it is you call us to do. Don't let us always think it's someone else. If it's us, Father, show us and let us answer as we will. We, Lord, thank you so much for this church and for the chance to study in this way and to be part of a group that loves you the same way. Help us grow some more, if it be your will. We pray this in Jesus' name.